Hi everybody, uh, I am just coming off of a box of Kleenex that I used in the recording of this episode with Sarah Seeger on the occasion of her magnificent memoir known as The Smallest Lights in the Universe. Uh, this is a very emotional episode for me, dealing with some painful issues that she and I share and some I don't share uh, with her uh, that she's managed to get through and, um, and just really left me uh, emotionally drained but in a good way. Uh, she's a, a lovely human being. She's an incredible astronomer, a f phenomenal mentor and scientist. I know you're going to love this episode. Uh, you may want to keep a box of Kleenex in all seriousness nearby, uh, especially if you do have read this book, uh, because it is a work of art. It's a gift to, uh, to those of us who suffer, who deal with loss at the deepest levels. And uh, there's no one I'd rather go into the impossible with than Professor Sarah Seeger of MIT. She did... Uh, uh, you know, she did uh, uh, humor me and go into the impossible with my final three questions. You won't want to miss those. You will miss them if you don't subscribe to this channel uh, via uh, the uh, via YouTube and via iTunes or wherever else you follow or get podcasts. But uh, but to get her answers in a uh, in the special thrilling three final questions that I ask all my guests who agree to go into the impossible. Uh, the only way to get those is to subscribe at BrianKeating.com to my mailing list, and then you will get them. So I hope you'll do that, and uh, and you won't regret it, because this is one of the deepest, uh, most moving interviews I've ever done, and it just further solidifies my mission in bringing these magnificent minds to you, my beloved listeners, viewers uh, out there in the in the world who have soul and spirit and indomitable ability to journey along with real human beings. That's what I want to do. I want to humanize scientists. Uh, including sometimes myself, because I could be robotic uh, with the best of them. But I want to humanize people, and, uh, and and really, it was such a delight and honor and a thrill to talk to Sarah today. I know you will enjoy it, and I know you'll help me in this mission by just coming along. That's all you need to do. Uh, on a ride into the impossible today, journeying to the smallest lights in the universe with Professor Sarah Seeger of MIT. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I have a copy of today's guest's spectacular book. It's called The Smallest Lights in the Universe. It's Professor Sarah Seeger. I've been a fanboy uh, for many years, actually, of Sarah's work. Uh, even long before she wrote this uh, really monumental book, which I can't really talk too much about, unfortunately, Sarah, because I'll, I'll get very emotional. I'm being completely honest with you. I've never read a book like this before. Uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, praise and encomia from from all others around the world, in, including all, all the wonderful reviews you got on the back of the book, Temple Grandin, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus Reviews. Um, I want to go deep, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid, sir. I don't want to get too emotional because it really resonated a lot with me. But I want to first congratulate you and thank you uh, for this gift that you've given to the world, uh, this book called The Smallest Lights in the Universe, in addition to all the gifts you've given in terms of other worlds that you've helped to discover. And we'll talk about that. First, I want to ask you, thank you, and ask you, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. It's the spring here, springtime here, and it's, it's warming up, and it's, it's, it's good. Yeah, life is good in the springtime. Uh, so, you know, I followed your career. We're about, you know, kind of contemporaries and, and age. And I've always found with you uh, that I was never I was never jealous of your success. I just saw it and I was just astounded. 
I felt, as they said, of when Stephen Hawking met Yaakov Zaldovich, who is a mentor of the, uh, one of my close mentors, Alex Polnareff, uh, Stephen Hawking said, I didn't think you really existed. I thought you were a collective, like Bourbaki. And I thought that about you until, you know, very recently when I discovered you are an individual. Um, so the first thing I want to ask, as I do with all my guests, it kind of gets us into the flow of the conversation, is this book has a title and, uh, and a very small subtitle. The subtitle is A Memoir. I want to ask you, as I ask people, um, which is the advice that you're never supposed to judge a book by its cover. I always judge books by its cover. And I assume a lot of effort went into choosing not only the cover, but the title. And I want to ask you, where did you come up with it? What's the origin story of the title and the, and the cover design of this book? Well, the title actually has two different meanings. And you're supposed to get it yourself from reading the book, but I will I'll give the spoiler. <laughs> The smallest lights of the universe, the smallest lights in the universe, it refers to the other Earths. We're trying to find out, are we alone? Are there planets like our own Earth out there? Now our Earth is very faint. It's, you know, as seen from afar, our own Earth, it shines in reflected light from the star, from our sun. And our Earth, believe it or not, it's 10 billion times fainter than our sun. <laughs> so when we're looking for these other Earths, they are the smallest lights in the universe. And, of course, it sort of has a double entendre, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Because um, the book, it describes both my professional journey through space and also my personal journey. Think of it like the journey of outer space and the journey of inner space. And in the journey of inner space, it has a more lonely meaning, meaning even. And if you think those Earths just out there floating through the vastness of space, it seems a bit lonely. But this other sense, it's the... It's about grief and depression and when you're like fall off a cliff into the deep abyss. What kind of pulls you out of that are, are the little tiny glimmers of hope. You have to hold on to those. And those I also call the smallest lights in the universe. And it's, uh, it's a story of multiple... I'm already getting emotional. This is no good. Uh, it's never happened. You know, when I talk to Sir Roger Penrose, I don't, I don't choke up like this. But it's a love... Yeah, he didn't write... I guess he didn't write that personal person. No, he doesn't. And, and most of the other, including your, your colleague down the hall, as I uh, remember, Frank Wilczek, who's been on the show four times, like you, I should point out, your, it's your fourth appearance, uh, at least your third appearance. I think this might be your third appearance, but this is the first one-on-one -on -one, uh, where we haven't been talking uh, uh, with a, a group, a true collective of astronomers as we have in the past. And I'll put links somewhere here, there uh, for people to find your previous appearances on the Into the Impossible podcast. But it's a love story. It's a series of love stories. Um, it's a story of self-love and kind of discovery as well. It's very unusual. And, you know, you point out that, you know, a lot of the things that you go through in this book there's no manual. Uh, um, my my own father passed away when I was about the same age your father was uh, when he passed away of a similar kind of malady. And, you know, I remember the experience I had after it of I, I felt scared for my own life. That, that Not that I was going to die of the exact same thing, which, you know, obviously there's some probability if your parents have cancer and we should take this opportunity for people to get screened and, and so forth as a service. But, but actually that I was kind of lost and, and without an anchor or mooring and floating through space. Um, I wonder, I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't married at that time. I didn't have any children. Um, when you were going through these episodes, um, what was, you know, kind of your, 
your solace, or at least the first time, because I, I don't think there's anything that can prepare. It's not that much of a spoiler to say also your husband, Michael, pass, passed away, your, your, your first husband. And, and I should say, first of all, I want to thank your, your husband, Charles Darrow, who put us in touch many months ago when news of uh, phosphine discovery on Venus took place. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so shout out to Charles, who's a fellow amateur astronomer, but also, you know, a semi-professional in some ways too. But you went through this these series of tragedies that no one should really experience for, for many, you know, until they're much older. But there's no handbook. There's no instruction manual. As complicated as the instruction manual that you wrote to, for NASA for a starshade, as complicated, at least it exists when you have a child, when you lose a parent. There's no instruction manual. There's no instruction right. manual on how to write a book like this. How, how did you do it? Well, there's a lot of questions in there, but you were first going to ask me if I had an anchor. And I suppose I did actually. And one of my anchors was my children. Cause as you know, anyone who's had children, if they're really little, like two years old, you know, you can't ignore them and just go off on your own little universe of grief. And the other was my work. I just love my work and being able to focus on it. Everything goes away. And my work was my solace actually. Does it happen to you, Brian? Like you start programming or whatever your thing is and you just get so absorbed in it. And the other stuff just goes away for a while. It does. It does. And certainly, you know, um, as I as I think uh, MIT alum Richard Feynman once said, you know, at least as a professor, uh, you have your teaching because if you fall, you know, into dis disarray with your research, you can always say, "I'm doing something productive." And in fact, that's one of the highest callings there is. One thing I learned from this professor, uh, Alex Polnarev my mentor, who was communicated to him by his mentor, Yakov Zeldovich, was that the word scientist in Russian means someone who is taught. It probably means a man who is taught, but be that as it may, it means someone who was taught. And it made me think we have an obligation because we were taught. And, and you talk about the roles of your father and, and of kind of the stars and your work as a type of teacher, as a mentor and guiding you. Um, but you strike me as someone who's always been incredibly independent and, and um, not, not necessarily, you know, to prove other people wrong. I think sometimes people use this, like, their rejections and failures, like rocket fuel to propel them to do better. And I'll show you, you high school girlfriend or boyfriend who rejected me. No, I, I don't, I don't get that sense at all. I think, I think it is true that our work can, can, can do that. For me also, I have to say it is my, my burgeoning faith or curiosity about existential questions. And I, and I do want to talk to you about that. Um, obviously, you know, I'm Jewish and my religion, uh, precludes me from proselytizing. I never proselytize in case you're just joining this channel. Uh, you know, it seems much more emotional than it, than it normally is. And that, that's okay. We, we, we have a diversity of different, uh, topics on, on this show. Uh, but yeah, it's true. You can lose yourself in your work. Um, but, but not having children, not being my older brother was married and had children. And I remember wondering, was it easier for him? Was it harder when we lost our father? to have children or not. And, you know, I wonder, I only had my teaching, in other words, and it's not the same. Yeah, I don't think there's, I don't think any one case is easier than another, honestly. Yeah. So I want to talk about the other thing that I communicated with MIT alum. There's going to be a lot, I mean, MIT has had, next to maybe UCSD, has had the most uh, representation on the Into the Impossible podcast. I've had Michael Saylor. I've had Andrew Baturbi. I've had Jim Simons. All these MIT alums. One of my favorite is, of course, uh, Jan 11, MIT alum. And I also had Katie Fries, uh, who is an MIT, who was a professor at MIT uh, as well. So um, 
I want to ask you, uh, when I talked to Jana, her first book was sort of a memoir too, uh, called How the Universe Got Its Spots, a, a, a delightful book, uh, a book of science, as your book is, a, a memoir. But I said to her, you know, was it risky to write a memoir? First of all, you're so young. She was so young when she wrote. She didn't even have a faculty job. At least, you know, you were already tenured, you know, full professor when you wrote this book. Um, you came into MIT as one of the rare people that they actually tenure ahead of time. And that's well-deserved. And, and of course, you've had tremendous accomplishments. We'll put those in the bio somewhere. I don't think that's the reason I'm talking to you today. This this magical book is really just, it's impossible to to um, not be over, overwhelmed by it in a good way. What gave you the confidence as uh, to write a memoir as A, an astronomer, you know, B, or a scientist, a woman in science, um, you know, at one of the most prestigious places on Earth and Earth's history to be a scientist? Is this not a risky maneuver for someone like yourself? Well, I never actually thought about that question, <laughs> to be honest. What was going through my mind was, when I was widowed, it was a crazy journey. Honestly, it was so bizarre and unreal. And it was incredibly, everything was magnified. Like imagine being happy or sad or frustrated. All of those are like a million times more. And I remember when I met my widow friends, which we might get to, but I just asked them like, wow, are you writing a book on this? Someone, one of us, we, we have to tell the world about this. It's so crazy. And that was my main motivation was to just share that journey. And it wasn't enough for a book and the book sort of morphed into this like whole life story thing. Mm. But another reason I wrote it, and I don't know if this speaks to every single person who reads it, is I was trying to give people a wake up call, you know, like life can change in the blink of an eye. And we have to try to make the most, you know, of what we have or what we can do and try to make that change that allows us to have purpose. Mm. And we'll we'll certainly talk more about that in you know specific uh, details that refer the reader. You know, I hate when I would go on podcasts and, and say, you know, can you tell us the exact contents of your book, chapter by chapter yeah, summary? Right. You know, so my audience can save nineteen dollars in the audiobook. I have the audiobook. I have the uh, the, the printed copy, and um, and it is a sort of how to guide. Um, how to cope with grief. Of course, everyone is different. As you say, there is no manual, just like in a, in a, you know, near drunken, only thing I can analogize it to is a drunken stupor. When your first child is born, there's nothing that can prepare you, uh, for when your first child is born, as you know, especially doing most of the work, you know, men are limited to a few minutes at best. Uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, that first night, my son is home and, and like, he's crying. I'm like, I'm getting twice as much sleep as my wife. I don't know how she survived, but, um, but then I'm like, get the instruction manual. Like, you know, where's the instruction? Like there is no freaking instruction manual. Uh, and there is, cause every kid is different. Um, and the, and I was talking to a very good friend, a rabbinical figure in my life last night. And, and he was saying like, it's just amazing because the fact that we survive, especially like you and I are like really curious. We love doing stuff. And you had all these adventures you talk about in the book. Like we, it's a miracle that we survived. And like, I have all my fingers. Like I, I I'm great, grateful to my mom and my, you know, my father of blessed memory, uh, you know, for, for at least allowing me to come into adulthood with all my extremities. Uh, but kids never really appreciate that. And, and I wonder if it, if you resonate with this, the, you know, Aristotle said many things, most of which in physics were wrong. You know, heavy bodies fall faster than lighter ones. There are four elements instead of 114. Uh, but one thing he said is that, you know, um, parents love their children more than children love their parents. And the reason he says was the sacrifice. 
uh, that parents do. And I actually think the mother, you know, children love their mothers more than their father. You know, spoiler alert, you know, for me maybe or other fathers out there because the mother sacrifices even more. Uh, how much of your career were you willing to sacrifice um, to ease the pain? Of course, you couldn't completely. You could never erase the pain of the memory. How much – explore that a little bit that you seem to me – you seem that you sacrificed a tremendous amount or you were willing to. And, and things work out obviously, you know, well enough in, in some ways. But but how did you come to that conclusion that you were going to sacrifice whatever it took for your kids? The thing is, I don't know that I really thought it through. Like, if you look back, it might look that way. But I wasn't like, okay, let me make my pie chart of how much time I have for this or that and a weighted function about where I should be spending my time and how. I just sort of, just like you described when the firstborn is born, you don't really have a plan. You just kind of go with it. And when um, you had these opportunities, I, I like it because now... You know, you explored a lot more, obviously, as a woman in science, which which I think would be good to talk about. You were dealing with sometimes a lot of men in science and sometimes even women or men that didn't have children. And I, f I find this quite frequently. I get a lot of complaints. I hear a lot of complaints. Why are parents getting so much free time during COVID or relief, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and you talk about in, in great detail how you had to arrange your, like, to get a prize, the Sackler Award, which is one of the most prestigious yeah, prizes in astronomy. You had to, like, like you went to Israel oh, yeah, for, like, right. two days, right? I mean, like, who does that? <laughs> well, there's a lot of different factors. And certainly, I'm just trying to remember now because I'm in this wonderful phase mm -hmm. where my children are almost grown up. You know, my oldest. <laughs> be 18 soon and they can cook and they're very responsible. They can shop and cook. They've had a job. They can manage money. The older one has been driving for over a year. Mm -hmm. So like we're, we're kind of almost there, but when they were little, it's a lot. Cause yeah, it's really tough. The one you're talking about was I was a single mom. And as you know, like in academia, we tend to move around. So we don't have family nearby. And many of us are somewhat estranged from our family. Let's say also as people have kids older and older, the grandparents are old, too old to, you know, effectively take care of the kids. So I don't have anybody. And hmm. then I got this wonderful award. And you have the one thing about this Sackler Prize is you actually have to physically go to Israel to participate mm -hmm. in the, the talks and and to receive the award. And I was just like, wow, I'm going to be half a world away from my kids. And at that time, I didn't have anyone else. I was widowed. I didn't have anyone I could trust, like, to take care of them overnight. What if something went wrong? This is what's going through my head. What if they break their leg or they mm. get hit by a car? Like, that's just parenting anxiousness. How can I be that far away? Because you can't just get on the bus and come home. Like, even if you plan by the next flight, it might be a day later. And then yeah. it takes a day to get back. As you know, you've got to change planes in New York. And the lines are really long, or mm -hmm. they were. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's going through my head. Like, I just don't know. And then I just thought of the one person who I, I could trust, which was the children's aunt, Aunt Rachel. And I, I just explained it to her. It's like, I really, can you please come here for a few days? And she did. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, yeah, really highlighted to me that, you know, if the world's... Well, you, you might know, not have thought about that, right? Right. Like that's the thing. A lot of people just wouldn't have... Have, uh, the funny thing is the other thing women would stress about is like, what could, what should I wear? Oh my God, I have clothes. <laughs> but okay, that's not equal to leaving the kids like a continent away. But. No, that's right. You talk and then there's other things too. Like I just remember one time um, I waited till I had a permanent job and I had a cash flow so I could hire a nanny. Like it all worked out. I tried to have kids young, but I got a job so that I could just uh, have my life a bit easier. But anyway, the nanny showed up at a certain time and then 
there was a meeting in town for one of my collaborations, but that meeting started slightly before, you know, I'd have time to get ready and drive and park at this meeting. And I just remember how hard it was I had to wake up the two little, little kids. And, you know, it's like breastfeeding one kid, like getting them dressed, whatever they need, getting them somehow keeping the morning going, getting myself like looking half decent, you know, even getting a shower is like nearly impossible. And then getting to the meeting. I remember all I had to do, and I got to that meeting on time, which was probably like 8 a.m. or 8.30. I got into my seat and I was like, <sighs> no one has any idea what I did up until this point, like how, how what an uphill battle I had to, to just get to that meeting on time, like awake, cough, caffeinated, dressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. And so that happened a lot. And now, of course, I don't have that now. And I've forgotten right. until these questions, what, what, how hard it was, but there's <laughs> definitely a lot, a lot of that. Yeah. When it's I, conferences, you know, before COVID we were always traveling all the time and, you know, just how to handle the conferences when, even when I um, was married to my first husband, it's a real burden to, to leave the kids behind with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, for my part, I, I think about things in terms of, you know, Shabbat, so like the Friday night dinner, you get a thousand of them with each kid, you know, 20, 18 years times 52 weeks a year. And I ask myself, and I've given up a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, not the level of prestige that, that you would have been if you turned down the Sackler Award, but, but nevertheless, you know, meetings and just professional kind of relations and, and playing a different role. And I try to rekindle some of that through these podcasts where I get to, you know, have all the fun of meeting brilliant colleagues uh, without gaining, you know, the 10 pounds that I typically do, you know, from all the muffins and sedentary activity. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this, this podcast is my attempt at, uh, at uh, dieting and, uh, but also mental uh, feeding my mind. And when I, you know, but I, I kept, couldn't help but think when I read this book, um, something I thought about a little bit, which is, um, which is that this is the only time I'm ever going to be able to write these words in that, you know, it's not like a journal, you know, where we, I've made, you know, erratum, you know, I've, I've had to submit corrections and, and you might know of a, a certain event that led to this thing behind me there, you know, or, or it was very, well, I've read the book. So yes, I've read yeah. the book. <laughs> but, but you can, you can retract, right. You can recant, right, you can, right. but a memoir, you can't retract. Although Charles Barkley, the famous NBA basketball player said he was misquoted in his autobiography and that, that takes a lot. But, but I want to ask you, you know, putting this in amber, you know, freezing this, this time, uh, I, a, I couldn't help but be impressed because I know, like I say, as a man, I can only know a fraction of what a woman uh, in science must go through, but I have great respect. I have, you know, sympathy if I can't empathize or empathy if I can't sympathize. I don't know which one is which, but, but the point being um, that, and I kept thinking like, I don't care about these prizes. I actually have come to a, 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 a sense of being settled with the Nobel Prize, with any prize, but I want to live to impress myself. And I, and I kept reading your book and I said, like, you must be impressed with yourself. Not like, I don't mean it at all, Sarah, arrogantly, but you've done so much. Um, was that kind of liberating to put it on paper? And like, did it clarify, as Soren Kierkegaard said, you know, life must be lived forward, but can only be understood looking backwards. And I, I always see that as a metaphor for the telescope. Like, did these things make sense in retrospect or, or were they worth it? Obviously not the death of somebody, but like the challenges, the struggles that you went through. You're very candid about your, you know, uh, the, the, um, the, the different, you know, kind of challenges you had, learning issues and, and what, what have you that you overcame um, and, and, uh, and so forth. Was this kind of liberating to put it in amber? Well, you know, yes and no. I think from the science side, I don't really dwell too much on the past. I'm always like, 
fixated on the next thing, the next journey. And let's get up, let's make sure we talk about Venus at some point. Yeah, um, of course. I really am more looking forward than looking back. But sometimes when I look back, it's only to remind myself that I can, like the Venus thing is somewhat complex because we have a mission we want to send, more than one mission to Venus. And so if I need to look back, it's only say, look, I did that stuff before. I can definitely do this other more ambitious stuff now. Mm-hmm. But the book was liberating just from the personal viewpoint to get all that out. It was incredibly cathartic. It's almost like, do you ever have, I don't know if men do this, but for women, girl talk, you always talk to your friends and you dump stuff. And then all of a sudden you feel better, <laughs> but your friend just feels a lot worse. <laughs> and so it's sort of like that with a book. I just feel so good. Yeah. But I know every people time people read it like you, and especially it strikes a chord or strikes a nerve with some people and then they feel bad. So I feel a bit bad about that, but I just feel liberated for just getting it all together and making sense of all, all the personal stuff, I think it's yeah. really tough. Yeah. Uh, Carl Sagan uh, had his widow Andrewian on my podcast, as well as his daughter, Sasha Sagan, who's an amazing author in there. They were the first mother daughter uh, team. Uh, soon I'm going to have Jim Gates another MIT alum who's been on the show three times, but I'm going to have him and his daughter, Delilah, uh, who's getting a PhD at your at your alma mater at Harvard uh, with Andy Strominger, uh, but but thinking back, you know, and and kind of this this way that you handled you know these setbacks and challenges, I think I look at you and I see potentially correct me if I'm wrong. You were kind of hooked as a kid on uh, astronomy and and really the the sky in some sense became. A form of therapy and you just talked about like this this conversation you have with your with your girlfriends and yeah i, I do it too it's called my therapist no i don't have a therapist i'm actually going to be but i am going to start advertising a therapy company at some point as has reached out to me to do advertising and first i was like you know i don't need that you know whatever and they're like you get a free session with our psychologist and i'm like is that enough you know do i get any drugs in this deal no i'm just kidding i'm not going to get any drugs but but i started thinking like i've I used to have a personal trainer, you know, years ago, or I, I do martial arts. I have a coach, uh, I have a, a flight instructor when I do my little putting around the sky. Uh, and so what's wrong with having a therapist? You know, what's wrong with having, and if people don't have it in their, in their family or their spouse or their partner, they don't have partners, uh, there's no stigma in my mind to doing it because it's really trying to perfect yourself, right, and, and coach yourself and make yourself better. By the way, just one second because yeah. my – I just realized my computer's not plugged in, so I'm just going oh, to just before oh, I had. Uh, sorry, sorry, well, uh, let me just start. Oh, pause it for a second. Okay. Um, okay, so we're back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I actually did go to therapy for about two years. Hmm. Before I had my own children, I thought my childhood was it was so destructively traumatic. I had to sort through all that because I wanted to be healed uh, before I had my own children. So I'm not sure where this thread was going, but I really support it. If you find the right person. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and, you know, one of my rabbis has said to me something like, you know, and my rabbis are, you know, ministers, priests, whatever, they can serve a similar role, but they've said things like, you know, our job as parents is to pass along only half of our neuroses to our kids. You know, if we all do that after, you know, 10 generations, there'll be almost no trace of our, uh, uh, of our original uh, starting point. Um, but I want to talk about, uh, as in physics, we often talk about differential equations and, and of course these need to be solved applying both boundary conditions and initial conditions. 
Uh, I want to talk about your initial conditions, what got you into astronomy. And you talk candidly about high school. And it's just so funny because I'm like visualizing you like you're probably very, you know, appealing to the opposite sex or, uh, I don't know, the same sex. Who knows? But but you were probably attractive and you didn't realize it and you were talking about that. And like you never really realized it. And then but it's like your telescope became this this magical device. And, and how ironic is it that you're your avocation became your vocation. So can you talk about that? My, my kick lately is that it's a crime. It's a moral crime if parents don't buy their kid at least this $10 Keating brand telescope. Because even from MIT, even from Cambridge, Massachusetts, even from San Diego, you can see all the craters on the moon. You can see all the planets, that Galileo, that Newton, that all these Jupiter. greatest... You see the bands of Jupiter yeah. and the moons of Jupiter and the moons change and Saturn's rings if Saturn's oriented favorably. It's amazing what you can see. So I see that as a gateway drug that, if not applied, if not injected into their minds, could prevent another Sarah Seeger. So can you say something to parents out there? I get this all the time. What's the best way to get my kids into a straw? Boys and girls, of course, you know, we're seeing a, a large development since you were young. I'm, I'm speaking from the office of Jeff Burbage, the late, great Jeff Burbage, whose wife, Margaret, was one of the founders of, uh, of you know, base, a, a tremendous amount of astronomical uh, entities, including the department, sub-department that I'm in here, which you will be speaking at next week, by the way. I can't wait for that, uh, that Zoom event. I cannot wait. By the time this is out, it'll probably be over. Uh, but I'm looking forward in, in, in retrospect to it. Uh, I want to talk about that. How do you tell a parent, what would you advise a parent um, to, to experiment or to encourage a nascent, incipient love of science or maybe astronomy specifically? Well, in general, I think it's great to expose your kids to all kinds of things, not just science. But speaking of science and astronomy specifically, and Brian, maybe you know of a, well, people are listening to this from all over, but I really recommend once we're back to normal, let's call it, mm -hmm. finding a local astronomy club that yes. holds a public star party night. And so then you don't have to buy anything. You don't have to do anything complicated. You can go to the star party, look through the telescopes, the astronomers, the amateur astronomers will know, you know, they'll be pointing to interesting things. And I think that's a really great way to get started. Mm -hmm. And whatever the equivalent of that is for other sciences as well, it's so important to expose your kids to things. Otherwise, all they find is what's on TV. <laughs> yeah, or YouTube. Well, I don't want them to turn off the Into the Impossible channel. Please do not do that, ladies and gentlemen. I need the, the ad revenue. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't make that much. But um, but speaking about high school and kind of not fitting in, that's where I discovered astronomy. I, I fell in love with the heavens. I found it um, sheltering. I, found, I felt it welcoming to kind of engage with these minds, as Carl Sagan uh, used to say, you know, a book is proof that humans can work magic because you can talk to somebody or listen to somebody who's dead for hundreds of years. Uh, and they're speaking inside your head and they're sort of visualizing their voice or, or oral, whatever it is called. Um, and for, for, you know, for this book and, and kind of thinking back in my high school experience, I didn't fit in. And I wonder, is that a bad thing? You know, in, in other words, yeah, of course, bullying is, is horrible and horrendous and, and should not be countenanced. But, but you know, I was, I was sort of out of place. I, I, I wasn't like a jock. I wasn't like, you know, I was into astronomy. That was kind of weird in the 80s, right? Um, to be like Hatley's Comet. Oh, well, you, seem so, you seem so uh, friendly and outgoing and popular now. So it's hard <laughs> to reconcile that image of you in high school. Oh, I've had a, I've had a lot of makeovers. and No, no, I, ha I haven't. I actually haven't. I, I, I feel like it, in some sense, I once heard from a friend who went to school in the Berkshires, not far from where you live, and hike and, and do stuff. And, and he said their, their motto was like, it's good for a college to be at the bottom of a hill. 
Like when you get to a place like MIT, you might be tempted to think, I really made it. Like, whereas you were kind of, you told me before we started recording, you actually got rejected, you know, before every other step, before you became a tenured person. People know how rare that, that's like getting into the major leagues, you know, on your whatever, first draft pick that Sarah did it and it's well-deserved. But I think not fitting in in high school kind of gave me that armor, a little bit of the toughness that I would need to survive some of the slings and arrows that I think, I mean, you've experienced a lot of that in your career. Do you think that that high school experience was formative in any sense in terms of your mental toughness? Absolutely. And it's not just about mental toughness. It's about being able to not fit in in science as well. So if I have an idea or something I want to pursue and the rest of the world, scientific world or astronomy world is telling me that's ridiculous, that's dumb, don't do that, that's impossible, then I could ignore that because I was comfortable not being someone who fit in and did mainstream. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly beneficial, I'd say. Do you feel that there is sort of um, this lovely, delightful, delicious aspect of escapism in the work that you do, somewhat of the work that I do, um, where you know I'm looking for origins of maybe multiple universes, um, and you're looking for life and habitable worlds. You, you say in the book, stars are magic. You say things like uh, these other worlds, just the thought of them, is magical, is delightful, as I say, delicious, mentally delicious, and that there's probably life, and you were called in front of Congress, and, and you were asked, you know, to do the math for them, because, you know, our, our congressional, yeah, right. uh, you know, you. Yeah. great, great fathers, um, yeah. and <laughs> they can't do the math them, themselves, and they wear that with, like, a badge of pride, it's like, no one would say, hmm, I, I can't read English, you know, <laughs> like, I'm so cool, like, I'm not good at those words and sticks. I think he was kind of teasing in a way, though, I think, you know, if we just yeah. sort of wrote out all the zeros on the blackboard, he'd, he'd get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you look at uh, what's become known as Seeger's Law, uh, and you think about these uh, the, the Fermi paradox in that context, do you feel ever that there is sort of an escapism? I actually talked to somebody, you'll, you'll probably ridicule me, I hope you won't, but I talked to somebody who's an, a proponent of what's called intelligent design. He's, he's actually a well-known, he wrote a, you know, two number one best-selling New York Times books. His name is Stephen Meyer. He's a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge in England, not the Cambridge you're in, the OG Cambridge, England. And, uh, and, and he was saying, you know, that like most of the, uh, comp, uh, the, the kind of uh, criticism that he gets is like, well, life originated on some other planet and then came here in what's called panspermia, I guess. It sounds dirty, but it's not. But, uh, but anyway, that, that explains the origin of life on Earth. But I was saying that seems like it pushes it farther and farther back. And I'm wondering, is it escapist, you know, when we fantasize about other planets uh, harboring life, those posters that you have outside your office that you talk about. Um, is there an escapist element or, or, you know, is it because we're not satisfied with planet earth or is it something else? It's a, mm, I think it is definitely some kind of escapism. You know, we love science fiction movies. People love reading science fiction. It's, I think along those lines in many ways, dreaming about the possibilities out there. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I think that um, I find it uh, a fun game, you know, kind of to speculate on, intellectually speaking. I think that people don't really appreciate how hard it is, you know, if you really go through Seeger's Law, you know, which is kind of a modern-day version of the Drake equation, uh, and I've had on the the Drake, you know, professor, uh, Jill Tarter, on my show many times as well, and, uh, you know, it's kind of an encapsulation of our ignorance, and what I always point out is what you would probably do the same at MIT if one of your students undergraduates hands in a paper and it has all these numbers on it but no uncertainties. 
and I say the uncertainties are the hard part about science. It's actually not so hard to calculate the, the expectation value, but the, the sigma, the, the statistical, the systematic errors, and they could be as large as 100%. And I, and I start thinking, well, you know, what's wrong with Earth? You know, not, not that, like, I, I often feel like this, and I heard this actually in the context of Venus life, which we're going to get to. And it was like, wouldn't it be amazing you know, if we found evidence for life, it would mean that we're not alone in, in, in some cosmic sense, you know, and that would mean that there's high probability. Okay, that's true. But like right now, you and I are 99.7% similar to chimpanzees and bonobos. And yet we never go around and say, oh, like, isn't it amazing? Like, we're not alone on planet Earth. Like, we already take it for granted. I feel like the day after you are successful, and I pray to God that you will be successful in all that you do, but... But I, but I feel like the next day we're gone as life with life as usual, and I actually have a proof for that. But, but let's keep going. Um, uh, what do you? Th I mean, this this notion that we we there has to be other life. I, I think like why don't we look on Earth and say how magical and wonderful it is to be on Earth, and 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 kind of say we should be satisfied. <laughs> Not that we shouldn't look, but no. but isn't that enough? Well, it's funny thing how you say that because it's an and, not an or. Mm. It doesn't have to be, oh, life is amazing on Earth, or it's so great to try to find life elsewhere. We can do all those things. And I often find, you know, Feynman, again, MIT alum, uh, I should look up what year he graduated, but, but he, you know, he said, like, why is it okay to wax poetically about Jupiter if he's a Greek god, but it's not okay if he's just a ball of methane? And, and I started thinking, well, you know, I don't know how much, like, people say, oh, we, we're just, like, cosmic pollution and we're cosmic, you know, uh, star stuff, uh, as, 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 as many people have said. Um, I don't know that that makes me feel bigger in a sense. Like, I feel like we are the only known form of life. We're certainly the only technological life that doesn't preclude it. Yeah. As you say, and statements are powerful. Um, but I kind of feel like we don't appreciate how good we are or how unique and magical we are on earth. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm all for looking and, and hopefully finding even, uh, but uh, and maybe we'd be able to do that with technology that my colleagues and I are building on the Simons Observatory. But I don't think. Do you think people would react differently? Let's say tomorrow, unequivocal evidence, proof positive, whatever that means in science, uh, there is, is some life form on Venus uh, producing phosphine. Do you think that humanity would react differently three weeks later? Would it make us like feel less lonely, perhaps, or that we're you know? less significant or more significant, I, I can't tell what it would do. But I'm always told that I mean, it's a really good thing, you know, that we just Right, right. I honestly think it depends on each individual. There's mm -hmm. plenty of people out there, they're not mm -hmm. the ones listening to your podcast, <laughs> who would just be meaningless. You know, it doesn't change your life on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> That's true. And right. there's others who, there's others for who it would be huge. Because having life on another planet, it somehow, it conflicts with the creation story. And there's another group who, you know, in their free time might wonder, wow, that's great. And then three weeks later, they may go back to just, okay, their everyday life. But, you know, there's, uh, but back to your point about Earth, let's switch topics for a second. Yeah. There are so many amazing things on Earth. I agree. Like, think about the life. I was just, I don't know what Twitter feed or what social media I get, but someone was going on about life at the bottom of the ocean, you know, these hydrothermal vents, it's amazing. Yeah. When people first discovered the complex life deep down at the bottom of our ocean, made possible by the energy coming off of these vents, they just couldn't believe it. That was like discovering life on another world in that sense. And right. I feel like there's so many chances for that here on Earth, whether you're learning it for the first time. Like recently on Twitter too, someone went on and on and it got quite a following about this type of bacteria that does photosynthesis off of 
heat, like not UV light, but the bottom of the ocean, it uses heat energy. We've wow. already known about this for a long time. It just sort of got recycled. And so you see that re-excitement the first time you learn about something or just how intelligent octopuses are. There's so many wonderful things on our planet, I agree. Yeah. So thinking about going out further into the universe, we'll come to Venus in a little bit. Uh, a large portion of the book is kind of the the quotidian struggle to get uh, to to take care of business as a professor, as an astronomer. Uh, and most people think that we sit around and we you know we just gaze up at the heavens and we we're waxing rhapsodically about it and so forth. But actually, it's a lot about like, well, why didn't that graduate student you know finish you know her her prelim in time so that she could deploy to Chile to take data for this? You know, it's or it's like the concrete's not there, or I've got this 198 page you know LOI. Right, people don't realize. Yeah, there's a large part of your job and my job that is like any other manager's job. Really, you have to have the strategy, the staffing, the budget plan the project management, and you've got to make sure everything happens when it's supposed to so the whole project can move forward. It's so true. Yes. And they don't, I don't know, do they at MIT, is there any training on like how to be a professor, how to run a lab, how to be a manager? No, no. In what? fact, the problem is that mm -hmm. when I see all of my peers in industry, so much training, oh my gosh, one of my friends works at a financial company and she got trained on how to give a better talk, a two-day, very intensive, very expensive workshop Mm. And it's like, huh, like, like, Brian, have you ever been asked by your work to take a class on how to give a better talk? No. Nope. I was thinking if she's taking that, I should take that. And yeah. I actually later signed up for that class. And they're constantly, one of my other colleagues got a class on how to deliver bad news. Hmm. And that's about uh, firing people. So the thing is that we really do need to be more aware of that and self-train or watch free videos or use money, ask your department head, if you have discretionary money, use that and take it on yourself to train. It's very unusual to be in an industry where there's no no training, but huge responsibility and expectations. Yeah, I would say we're kind of like uh, small business people, except we don't really make a profit. We just get citations. Uh, but we <laughs> right, have... That's what I say. That's what yeah. I say. You're like an entrepreneur and you have to constantly keep stuff moving and figure new things out and solve really hard frontiers problems all, all wrapped together. I always say the same thing. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. funny. Yeah, it's, uh, it'd be great to, to, to kind of take a master class from, uh, from maybe from you and we can, we can riff on these things. But I always say, you know, that and also, Sarah, with public speaking, uh, those two things combined together in outreach, I feel like it's sort of a moral obligation in the sense that, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor at a state university. I'm being paid by the taxpayers. If we've got an NSF or NASA grants, we're paid by the taxpayer. And yet we never, like, really exchange the information with the public. The public is left with this impression that, well, Sarah and Brian are kind of like specialists and and they work on specialized things. And I wouldn't go down to the hospital and just start using the MRI machine. So why do I think? But it's a little bit different, you know, because we, we are public servants in a certain sense. And then I hear from my colleagues, I'm not good at that. And I say, oh, yeah, well, were you good at quantum field theory when you were, you know, 13 years old? I bet you weren't. You know, even these are the most brilliant people in the world. Uh, and, uh, and, and no, of course not. So how would you get good at it? I, I studied it. Well, you made it a priority, you dedicated resources, you put in the effort and the sweat equity, and you became good at it, right? What makes you think you can't do that as a manager, as a public speaker, as an outreacher? Um, and it's just, they just don't prioritize it. So I, I no longer have sympathy for my colleagues anymore because it's like anything else. If you want to be better at it, like you said, you know, you took this class. I, I, salute, I think that's so cool. Actually, my students that are foreign students, I, uh, I had students from China, from Thailand, from Uganda, 
over the past decade. That's one of the best things about being a professor, right? We get to meet people we would never meet, and our kids get to meet somebody, you know, completely different religion, looks different, acts different, whatever, and they come into our house or we go to their house. It's one of the best parts about being an academic, but one of the things I did is I paid for my students to go to like a Toastmasters, uh, my graduate. Yes, yes. I'm so glad you did that. And and it was great. And then I'm like, why am I only doing it for my students from from you know from other countries like my my you know american born students they need to know it um and so i've, I've tried to do that it is it does you know elizabeth is a little bit more challenging but as you say there are online resources or videos you just have to make it a priority so take it from these two doctors uh brian and sarah uh that this is something that, that technically minded people should do because i always say there's no skill there's no job description sarah and you can agree or not but like the scientist like it's a series of like a trillion, you know, micro skills that we synthesize together if we're successful into a macro skill. It's true. I like how you've parsed that. I want to ask you about this, the hiring situation in academia. We're used to being graded and judged and, and we have this, I call it the academic hunger games, you know, where we're like, first you have to get into a good college, you know, and get a letter in high school and get into good college and college to graduate school, graduate school, postdoc, postdoc to faculty. And, but be, in between postdoc and faculty, a tremendous phase transition occurs where it's almost trivial to get a postdoc nowadays if you're halfway competent. I mean, I've, I, and all my students are 100% competent, but they've never been unemployed ever after get graduating from graduate school. And that doesn't mean academia, but then it becomes impossible. And it's like I'm into the impossible, but you went into the impossible by getting tenured on your, you know, on the start opening day of, of being a. But what do you make of this situation? And I use a terrible analogy. I'm sure you can find a better one. It's kind of like imagine the baseball league in, in America, where AAA, which is the step below being in the major leagues, imagine that was easy to get into. Like anybody, could, I could get into it. Um, and but then getting into the majors is just as hard as it is now. Uh, what, what do you attribute that to that, you know, kind of there's, there's this abundance of postdoc opportunities. Is it uh, moral to do to postdocs to set them up for almost certain failure? It's almost impossible to be a professor nowadays, I, I would say. I think we've really ruined the system. We've done a real disservice by, yeah, as you said, making a bloated postdoc level. And I think, and Brian, you may know the answer to this, but there was some point along the way where funding agencies, private and government, for some reason, they just wanted to have more and more postdoc programs. It's easier to get money to create a postdoc program than a new faculty slot. And so that's how it happened. We ended up having way too many postdocs where people are essentially dedicating the prime of their lives and not necessarily getting to where they want to go. And then it's uh, it, it continues, you know, the Hunger Games continue for seven years or so until tenure can uh, take place. And a lot of faculty don't get their first independent research grant until they're in their 40s. Um, and I'll let Maybe you... we need fewer grad students too, because it's starting there, I think. On the other hand, I heard from the president, not personally, but from the president of MIT, it said something like, we could admit 100% more students and not dilute the quality of MIT one bit. Meaning that they, they, they reject so many people and there's so many qualified people out there. Undergraduates. Mean, Undergraduate, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it made me think, well, like, why aren't we training? Like, imagine a society where there was, you know, twice as many MIT educated students or whatever, or UCSD educated. We reject a lot of people too. Um, mm -hmm. What would the world look like? Do we need more scientists if we're going to get 
to the stars and, you know, live on Mars or the clouds surfing on Venus or whatever. Uh, he'll tell us about, uh, or go to Trappist, uh, like my friend Adam Burgasser, a uh, former MIT colleague of yours probably, uh, says, you know, go to Trappist and, and have a vacation there. Um, if we're going to do that, it seems like we do need more STEM you know, scientists and, and that pipeline. So on one hand, we need a, a, a young, you know, cadre of people willing to put in the work and do the training. Uh, we need people to train them, I suppose, until AI takes over, uh, like your mm -hmm. colleague Max Tegmark uh, and I chatted about. Uh, but then finally, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not asking for a solution, but but I mean, do we need more STEM people? I mean, we're always hearing that. We need more STEM. We need we more do. STEM. We do. It's not, not so they'll go in exoplanets or any other kind of astronomy, but it's, we live in an increasing technological society. I mean, think about even your car mm. now, they all have computers and you know, when something get, goes wrong, you actually have to either, you have a device or you take it to the garage and they plug a something into it to and it tells them what went wrong where. So just to have people keep things going, invent new things. Yes. We need a lot more people in STEM. Yeah. Um, and I think you had a lot of hands-on experience with uh, telescopes, et cetera. I want to talk a little bit about graduate students and, and uh, postdocs, et cetera, and being a mentor. Because, again, it's one of these things like being a parent. There's no manual. There's no how-to guide. There's no what to expect. You know, you probably uh, ruin your first one like, you know, uh, my older brother was ruined. I, I'm, I'm convinced. Uh, but I'm <laughs> just kidding, Kevin, if he's out there. Uh, but, but I, uh, you know, we, we don't get trained how to do it. And I wonder, you know, how do you approach the the job of mentorship? It's like it's like a biathlon being a professor. Like you have to be really good technically, you know, and like and then some you have to go like ski like hell sometimes, and then sometimes you have to like hold your breath and focus and hold the gun or the bow and arrow. Um, what is your philosophy as a as a mentor? You've had so many great, you know, proteges. I don't even know mentees, mentos. Uh, I don't know what you call them, but but the point is you've done a lot of. What is your philosophy in terms of mentorship? Not teaching, but in terms of mentorship, where I think it's more important to have wisdom than knowledge in some sense. Yes, well, I always try to get to know the student and find the right project for the right person. Because everyone has a different skill set and a different kind of thing that they're going to resonate with. So that's the number one. And number two is that... Is, and this is true, at, I only know the students at MIT, the graduate students, but they're typically very good technically. And they may not need to be taught programming or, but they need to be taught a whole other set of skills, like how to think creatively. They need room to grow in that area. How to think like a scientist, how to think big and not just like when you're an undergrad and you're going from problem set to problem set, like predefined set of tasks. And yeah, those are, and how to how to choose a problem, how to identify something that they're going to love doing that is actually going to be able to make change. Mm. And then there's another set of skills we just touched on that they often don't have, like communicating, writing. Those ones usually are pretty poor. And so I, I try to work hard to help the individual with what they need. It's usually not programming. Sometimes it is. <laughs> usually these other surrounding things that they'll need to succeed. And that's kind of the overview. You say a beautiful line in the book. You say, mentors show you where to look, or not only where to look, but how to see. And I think you, you had the benefit of some great mentors, and now your, uh, your protégés are, are very fortunate to have you as their mentor. Uh, and it's sort of like never ends. It's almost like family. I mean, sometimes we spend more time with our students and postdocs and professor colleagues than we do with our, with our families. Um, I'm trying to, you know, coronavirus has been a time for me to 
a little bit reevaluate that and and kind of you know they're they're young for only so long and you know we were blessed to have have children uh, and and you know wanting to feel like well how do you stop time and I want to ask you that <laughs> maybe we could switch another gear again go back uh, go back to the uh, to the sections that made me uh, tear up but but. It seemed like a lot of time in the book you wanted to, time to kind of speed up because of that old saw time heals all wounds. But on the other hand, like we also want to pause time when kids are only young once. And I heard, you know, Sam Harris, who's a famous, you know, kind of philosopher, et cetera, podcaster. And he said, you know, the most precious commodity there is is not even time because we all waste time watching cat videos or Into the Impossible podcast with Brian Keaton. No, I wish he said that, but he didn't say that. Uh, we all waste enough time, but it's attention. He, and he claims attention is the most precious commodity. I say no. I say innocence is the most precious commodity. Because, like, once you I've, – I've interviewed people that are, like, war veterans and stuff, Sarah, and they've killed people. And, and, and they're like, I can never unsee it. I can never undo it. And they needed to do it. They would have died. And it gives me chills, you know, to think about that. But, um, but you know, in a sense, like, if they didn't do it, they wouldn't be talking to me. But on the other hand, they can never get it back. And, and so I feel, how do I apply those lessons? Like, wisdom is benefiting from the failures and experiences of others so you don't have to make them yourself. And for me, I wonder, like, would you stop time? Or, or are you comfortable? Or would you speed up time? I mean, they're, they're the two different things. Like, waiting is the hardest part. And then, like, I wish I could turn back the clock. Wh- which, which do you cleave more towards? Well, I love the concept of stopping time for special or poignant moments. <laughs> I remember when my second born was six months old and I realized I wasn't going to be having more children. I had two, which I love dearly. I really wanted five. I know you have, I think, five, but it just wasn't going to happen emotionally, financially, like having the nanny, sending them to the Montessori school, just the time and my energy level wasn't happening. Mm. And I remember, wow, I remember six months to 12 months being like an amazing time with the firstborn. So I'm like, I got to pause time. If I could pause time, I would. But instead of pausing time, because of course we have no control over that, I just took extra time to enjoy, to pay attention, spend more time in that. I don't know if you remember that phase. It's so great. They're so funny. Like they just have smiles and they're happy and they're not necessarily mobile yet. So they won't just kind of go off and do stuff. You can take them anywhere. So happy and joyful. So I pause time in my own way. So I think I'd go for that pausing time. Yeah, I, I think so too. You know, I always say there's there's multiple scales of time where time becomes important, and and you know the the two or three hours of clock elapsed proper time, you know, between dinner and bedtime can feel like an eternity. You know, because I need water, I need a graham cracker, I need to go to the bathroom, I need to go to the bathroom again. Trying I had to the pause water. time, yeah. They're trying to pause time. <laughs> they're trying to stop. And they're ex- They're better than we are. And of course, they want to grow up really fast. And um, you know, I've actually explored maybe not mysticism, but you know, at least in Judaism, there is you know, there's prayer. And I started thinking, oh, like prayer, I feel kind of corny. Like I'm asking God if God exists, which I don't even know if I believe 100% in either. But I'm asking God to suspend the laws of the universe just for Brian Keating's benefit. You know, like when I'm when you see a house on you know that's on smoking or a car that's on fire and you know, praying, oh, it's not mine. That means you're praying; it's happening to somebody else. Um, so I, I don't know how I feel about prayer, but I see a meditative value, and I think about well, like meditation might be. And I had Deepak Chopra on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Wow! And he talked a little bit uh, about like his like the, you know splitting life into four quadrants, basically like birth and growth, accumulation of resources, 
expending resources, and then he calls it preparing for death. And I was like, would you pause any of those? He's like, I pause each one of those by meditation. In other words, just like thinking and, and, and contemplating. I wonder, do you have any like daily habits or rich, now that your kids are a little bit older and it's not like, hmm, well, they need to go to the hospital today. You know, like, and they're really yeah, right. young. No, like, well, the one broke his, uh, apparently he broke his hand the other day. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Old, yeah, it's okay. He's old enough to figure it out on him, his own. So he came <laughs> back from a soccer game and his hand was really hurting a lot. And he's like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor because they're not going to do anything. <laughs> And then a week later, he's like, huh, my hand still hurts just as much. I think I should probably go to the doctor. <laughs> so do you have any like daily rituals or weekly rituals? Do you have any, you know, signposts to mark times passage other than the seasons, obviously, on a daily basis or a seasonal basis or the quarter system or semester? <laughs> I mean, I wish I had a really great philosophical deep answer for you, mm. but I don't really. I mean, mm. I try to take some time each day to reflect just on that day or the week. And I, I do think about my goals, like personal and professional and ask, can I do better? What's not getting my attention? You know, what's my main thing I want to move forward? So I have that kind of level, but, and I'm also Jewish, as you may or may not know. Yeah, I, I know. Not very observant, but we do try to catch the important holidays like Passover. I'm not sure if you want a timestamp on this, but Passover, okay. Passover's coming up soon. Mm-hmm. And we usually have a brisket or something in a special meal. And we used to go through the whole Seder. But lately, I think we're just going to tell the Passover story, you know, not go through every element. And just so for fun, we're going to have turkey this year because we accidentally got two turkeys at Thanksgiving. And one of them has been taking up so much space in the freezer. We uh -oh. have to have a special occasion. It's not the same ask. freezer that took up a cat, <laughs> is it, Sarah? No, no. Different freezer. Okay, thank God. Thank God. We still have that same freezer, but that's not where the turkey is right now. So, uh, so, so yeah, so I do, but I'm not, um, not as contemplative as you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a develop. I mean, nothing can, like I said, nothing can prepare you for a kid. Nothing can prepare you for the loss of a parent, you know, uh, and and the other other challenges. But but I think you know, history as as a sum total, I think we'd be fools to ignore, even if you don't believe. Like I had Freeman Dyson on many times on the podcast, and he would say, "Look, God's existence can't be really fault proven wrong. It can't be proven right. So it's a mystery." And a mystery is different than a puzzle. He said, I love solving puzzles because there's a solution. I might not be able to solve it, Brian Keating, but Freeman could solve it or Sarah can solve it. But a mystery is something like very delicious because nobody can solve it. And, and maybe nobody can solve it. And maybe that's the point. And, you know, I just love kind of thinking about these, these traditions um, as a, you know, conservative small c in that, you know, you're, you're thinking about these things that have been handed out for thousands of years in, in most cases, or it could be something new. I mean, I've spoken for atheist churches called the Sunday Assembly. The Ethical Humanist Society of Chicago is one of the oldest ones I spoke there. And I love it because they get together, they give charity, they sing hymns, you know, they do reading. Of course, it's, you know, it's from like uh, Philip Roth or, or you know, Carl Sagan or something. Which, that's fine. I, I don't care. I don't care it, it, because my belief is that people have religions. You know, whether they know it or not, whether they admit it or not. I mean, MIT is a religion. You know, there's so much lore associated with where you are and people just like do anything to get in there. And, and it becomes like this, this idol, you know, and it could be a good thing. Uh, that's for sure. But, you know, some people's pinnacle of, 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 their, of their lives is, is going there or getting in there and, and, and uh, for good reason. It is a wonderful institution. But I think it's important to have rituals, you know, kind of outside of 
of your work and, and have at least one day, I command my graduate students, I'm not God, but I say, you can't work six day, seven days a week. Otherwise, you're, you are like enslaved. You may love your work. You may be a total nerd and love it so much, but you need time to relax. You need time to breathe. And that comes through in the book because you take time out and one of the greatest triumphs of your life had nothing to do with the lab, nothing at all. And it's out in nature. It's closer to me than you in the Grand Canyon. I'll save that for the reader. But the importance of nature comes through. And was that always something, you know, is that just built into you as a Canadian uh, by birth? As I think a, so. It's yeah. built in, but it goes back to your previous point about any meditation or deep contemplative thought. And that's what nature does for me. Mm. That's like my meditation and a lot of people, I think. Mm. So I always love going out and spending the day outside doing hiking or in the past canoeing or what have you, but yes, definitely. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It does seem to reach that state of what, uh, uh, people call flow. I'm having Stephen Kotler, who's written a lot of books with Peter Diamandis, who is a MIT alum. Uh, you may know Peter Diamandis. He writes a lot of books about exponential growth and so forth, but he has a book called um, uh, The Art of the Impossible, I think, uh, and he's coming on to talk about flow states and how you get into them and how they're very much drug-like, <laughs> but it's kind of like a healthy drug because you make it yourself. Right. Uh, and of right. course, you can go too much and do you know too much adrenaline uh, junkieing. But um, okay, so next, I want to go to this very important topic: how we met the first time with your uh, wonderful, handsome uh, husband, uh, brilliant husband Charles Darrow, put me in touch with you. I thank Charles so much for doing that. And that was on the occasion of an announcement made back in September, I believe it was, of a discovery of a molecule on Venus known as phosphine, which my crude attempt to think about is kind of like uh, ammonia. But with a night with a phosphorus molecule, is that right, Sarah? You can think of it that way. <laughs> so, talk about uh, what that discovery was all about, and what is the status of that discovery now? Well, in looking for signs of life elsewhere, we're trying to find gases that don't belong. And believe it or not, it was nearly a hundred years ago. James Jeans, a famous astronomer, thought about this. He acknowledged that in our atmosphere here on Earth, oxygen fills our atmosphere to 20% by volume. But without photosynthetic life, plants and photosynthetic bacteria, there'd be virtually no oxygen. Right. And so even he wrote about, wow, you could look for a gas somewhere else and that doesn't belong. Like oxygen here on earth, it's highly reactive. It wouldn't be in our atmosphere unless it's continually replenished. Well, my team studies a lot of different gases that we might look for on other planets far away. And one of the gases we became enamored with is phosphine because on earth it's only associated with life, no other way. And, and little did we know that a radio astronomer in the UK, Professor Jane Greaves was also thinking about phosphine. And she purposely went out on, purposefully went out on a limb and decided to search for signs of life on Venus. And she dug through the literature and came across some of the same papers we found in biology explaining that Phosphine is, it's very, very strongly associated with life on Earth. And she pointed the radio telescope, James Clerk Maxwell telescope, she pointed ALMA at Venus and a mutual contact connected us because we were, our teams were each working on phosphine and we joined Professor Jane Greaves' team to work on phosphine. Last September, the team made a big announcement about finding a signal of phosphine on Venus and we explained that no matter what kind of chemistry process you think about, whether it's lightning or volcanoes or meteorite de delivery or surface minerals being upswept from the surface, 
there's no way that we know of to make phosphine on Venus in the amounts required. And these amounts are tiny, just like parts per billion. So we speculated, perhaps, I mean, we have no way to know, of course, but maybe it's life-producing phosphine. Mm -hmm. So that was a big announcement. The world loved it. The chemists hated it, by the way. They, <laughs> uh, on social media and email chains, they went negatively wild in a very angry way. And now we're about six months later. I just wanted you to know there's no, that, that I know of, there's no published paper coming up with a chemical process that can produce phosphine on Venus. Mm. Yeah, despite all that. Um, what's not as rosy of a picture is astronomers looked at the data. And for one of the data sets, ALMA, so far, no other group who's looked at this data has found a signal of phosphine. We stand by our, our data analysis. With the James Clerk Maxwell telescope data, People have revisited that as well. Um, that's the great thing about astronomy today is we always make our data public, pretty much always. And when people look at the JCMT data, they do find a signal. And those groups who find that signal, they work hard to say it's not phosphine, that instead it is another gas. There's a gas, sulfur dioxide. Hmm. And right at the moment where we're at is that we're finding that sulfur dioxide might explain a tiny amount of the signal, but so far, we can't see a way that it explains the whole signal because you'd need far more sulfur dioxide you know, than has ever been seen on Venus. Mm -hmm. So we're still waiting for this to unfold, actually. And this is something that might take a long time. Think about methane on Mars, if you've interviewed anyone on that one. It's 15 years later. I think most people believe there's methane on Mars, but it's still somewhat controversial. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of great discoveries that kind of attract a lot of attention, including discoveries I've participated in. And mm -hmm. you know, one thing I, I and, and I'm not this is not a criticism of the current uh, description that you made, but but maybe preceding uh, events, including maybe my own, even is that you know the public will find out, and it will always be on page one. You know, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, or whatever you guys have over there, the San Diego Union Tribune over here. Uh, for my friends over there. But uh, but then if there is a question or there is even, you know, God forbid, a retraction, a recantation, uh, then it's on, you know, page B, you know, 52 of the Saturday edition. That's the least read of all seven editions. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, my, my controversial, you know, proposals that experiments should keep in reserve a budget equal to, you know, 25% of their PR uh, for retractions. And, and I also think it goes along with what we said commentantly with the fact we never get taught uh, how to teach, how to be mentors, how to be parents, whatever. But we also never get taught, like, what are the ethics of being a professor? You know, making this announcement, like, if a professor needs to get tenure and then, or, or here, you know, a graduate student needs to graduate, you know, and, and, and they might have questions and maybe they don't go ahead with their, with their concerns because they're, so there's no ethical training. I mean, there is formally, yes, you don't copy research, you quote services, you don't plagiarize, but very different from the kind of, unique events that go on. So um, anyway, that's just but kind back of... To this, right, I know, but back to this phosphine for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I think the good thing about modern day practices is we make our scripts public, the data is public, and people have a chance to, to, to work through it all, actually. Mm. And I think actually in the case of phosphine, I don't know if it's been front page news, but it's been pretty front and center. The controversy is is quite well out there being discussed. So yeah. but no, I, there's this really interesting thing about phosphine. So let's, phosphine aside, this, um, 
debate, this controversy, this discussion, it has shone, like reshined a light on Venus. And it's helped people see, I mean, you have a lot of kids. Isn't it true there's always the ignored sibling? <laughs> usually the one sibling who gets all the attention and then the opposite end, there's one who's always ignored. It could and be. So That's I always not see uncommon, Venus, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always see Venus as that ignored. Right, sibling. Mars gets all Mars, the... Yeah, Mars is getting all the attention. So this amazing thing is happening now. We're um, working really hard on a mission concept, small, medium, and large, three different ones or repeated small ones to go to Venus and to search for not just phosphine, but other gases that are out of equilibrium that don't belong. Mm. We're going to search for signs of life and maybe even life itself. Independent of my work, uh, there's other people. There's a young person on the team, a postdoc, who actually, um, he wrote a photochemistry code to help explain the presence of phosphine. And he decided to apply it to Venus in general, Not now not talking about phosphine. And he's actually, seems like he's been able to explain a couple of long-standing chemical anomalies in the Venus atmosphere. And this sort of in a roundabout lay could, like imagine if this, imagine a universe where, okay, the phosphine debate kind of goes on, but it enabled us to find signs of life or life itself through a totally different pathway. Mm. But just because the phosphine debate brought Venus back to the forefront. Mm. Yeah, that was so, kind of the ultimate and extremophiles that you were talking about er earlier. And uh, you mentioned in the book that there were, you know, you have this theory. And what I love is the candor in the book. Like you had this theory with some postdocs that like maybe every gas is produced by life in an atmosphere. And then like you went to someone at Harvard, uh, uh, name escapes me right now. But he said, no, there's plenty. Here's like three of them. And you say as an aside, only he named multiple other multiple ones that aren't produced by life. And as an aside, only one would have been sufficient. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminded me of, of uh, uh, there was a book in 1929 written. Uh, it was titled "100 Scientists Against Albert Einstein," and it was all these German Nazi scientists that were uh, dismayed that he had left Germany and gone to America and was besmir were besmirching. And several of them were Nobel laureates. But Einstein mm -hmm. is reported to have quipped. Uh, if I was really wrong, it would have only required one person. <laughs> I was thinking about that mm -hmm. one here. Um, I want to talk a little bit, uh, and so I'll have links to the Venus Life website. Is that still uh, one of the premier places for people to go? Yes. Okay, great. You can get updates there about, we put news articles there, so yes. And I'm still hoping to get Jane on the podcast at some point. Uh, and I, I do follow it, and, and I, I do- By the way, one more thing about that that yeah. I forgot to tell you. So for yeah. Professor Jane Greaves right now, it's a full-time job just responding to all of these um, all the articles coming out saying phosphine, either the signal's not there or the signal is there, but it's not phosphine. It's it's literally a full-time job for her. I believe it. And I want to explore that dark side, if you will. Indulge me with some forbearance, uh, Sarah. So um, you may know your crosstown neighbor, uh, Avi Loeb, uh, came out with a controversial book, uh, which at the end of which mentions your discoveries of uh, potential discovery of, of phosphine produced potentially by life on, on Venus. And uh, that's at towards the end of the book, and and but in the in the meantime, he's gotten a tremendous amount not not for that, uh, but a tremendous amount of criticism uh, for this discovery that he claims Oumuamua this was this interstellar uh, interloper that wasn't uh, was not naturally made that it was made not by man or woman but by some sentient technology some civilization uh, the direction of which is completely unknown to him but. Nevertheless, that the preponderance of evidence, of course, he's a good scientist, a great scientist, and would never say it's 100% sure that it is. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to a couple things. One is, 
the back reaction that he got from people in his own department, which I had seen emails and confidential things from, uh, and, and also from the whole astronomical community, accusing him of various things from, you know, sexism to, uh, to uh, you know, basically uh, self-aggrandizement, arrogance. And I said, look, the, you know, the guy's Israeli, and the nickname for Israelis is the cactus. So you gotta, you gotta expect he's gonna be a little bit prickly and he's gonna fight back. Uh, but I felt and I sense, even to this day, some of the attention is caused by Avi. I think he, he displayed a poor uh, lack of respect and, and collegiality for Jill Tarter in a well-known video. He's apologized to her, as I understand it. Um, but, uh, but so there's some self-inflicted wounds. But I sensed another sort of um, uh, amount of heat that came down. And that was not scientific, even though it was perpetrated by other scientists. Uh, can you say something about that? When it's not like you've discovered a new type of, you know, type two superconductor. You know, it's not going to cause, you know, a the same headlines, but b the same hostility. And I wonder, you know, if it's if it's true um, that some of the negative attention is is coming because the stakes are so high, jealousy, envy, or um, what your reaction is and how you handle it. Are you talking about phosphine now? Yeah, or phosphine Avi? and yeah, first phosphine, and then if you want to comment well, on what's going on with Avi, that okay, would be sure. Um, maybe you have more insight into this. I have no idea why people were so hostile. The chemists, especially, mm -hmm. unbelievably hostile. And like I said, they didn't follow up. We welcome. <laughs> Please write a paper. You know, you can exclude us from. You know how you get to suggest who not to review, exclude mm -hmm. us. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> we just haven't seen that. And even the the observers, you know, some of them would send us a note saying you know, you can, or they, in the abstract said, okay, you can retract now. We're not going to retract now. Like it's, we're not like, yeah. why would we, we still find a signal in the way we analyze the data, but that level of anger was just, I've never seen that before. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I don't know what it is actually. And, you know, phosphine or not, uh, I don't know if this will sound arrogant, but we, like I, or we we're influencers, you know, that word they use influencers mm -hmm. yeah. for like dog items or fashion. Right. Now this is popular now. Yeah. That's that's just a fact actually. Yeah. So don't know. So what do you think it is? I think there's a combination. I think I, I did sense sort of a patronizing, you know, kind of uh, malice in some sense that that you know Yes, the chemist or the astrochemist or the astrobiologist, you know, you're you're out of your depth, you're out of your lane, whatever you want to say. And I, you know, I don't know Jane at all, you know, personally, Professor Jane Greaves, uh, but I'm hoping, to, as I say, to have her on the on the podcast talk about her work as well. But I feel like there is a certain amount of uh, it's almost impossible not to get attention. You know, all the press conferences those were very rare until the 1980s there was never like right. a press yeah, conference talk about that in your book yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's dangerous you know it turns it into this celebrity and, and fashion and, and so forth when you know that's not really what science is about and i had this conversation yeah. the thing is you've got to drill down then then you've mm -hmm. got to work with nature and science and the other prominent journals and say look please don't do this just let people talk about it all along let them get feedback you know, don't don't hold it there. But I just want to give you one example of hostility. The reason why I like I didn't take any of this personally, mm -hmm. and I didn't think that oh, we don't know what we're doing. Like I never thought that because <laughs> one of the very first things that happened was a prominent planetary scientist who led one of the big missions immediately like email blasted this list that has like a few hundred people and said Ugh, we all know. Well, I don't know what the tone was, but it factually just said, look, we all know that Jupiter and Saturn have phosphine. 
as if to dismiss phosphine as even ever being able to be associated by life. But Jupiter and Saturn have a lot of hydrogen. Yeah. Venus has almost no hydrogen. Jupiter and Saturn have high temperatures and pressures beneath their atmosphere. Phosphine, phosphorus wants to be with hydrogen in that case. And so on Venus, it's really totally opposite. So we saw some stuff that just made no sense right off the bat. And that's how, that's how I knew people were being hostile, not that they were being righteous, that they were factually correct even. So that's, that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, I had a little taste of that with Bicep too, and and people coming out of the woodwork and the announcement, and saying, uh, oh, it, it, you know, it's definitely it's definitely from this foreground synchrotron radiation, and it can explain everything by magnetic fields, and uh, in our galaxy alone. And so, and then in the end, they're saying, oh, see, I was right because I said it was foregrounds all along, and so, but it wasn't from synchrotron or somebody said it was from, you know, anomalous uh, systematic effect that we had, that we had actually published a paper on to rule that out as a source. But because we were clear that we didn't understand the underlying cause of it, but we limited it, excluded it from being a cause of the B mode signal, potentially from inflation uh, that we were claiming putatively uh, to have detected. Uh, oh, we were right. It was a systematic. And so, yeah, there, there, there is unavoidably, there's this phenomenon that, you know, Italians have some term for it. And it means like you get shot the most when you're over the target. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, th I think it's a sign. Yeah, you're right. You know, these, these things, it's impossible for them not to affect you at all. But on the same token, the fact that you're getting attention for it means that other scientists are taking you seriously. I think that's where Avi is a little bit um, you know, kind of uh, distracted by a lot of the criticism. I mean, he will point out, you know, so and so, you know, to you know, that's criticizing me hasn't written a single paper, and here's seventy six papers that I've written just about a muamua. Uh, but I also think that there's, you know, there is a risk when you talk about alien life. I mean, it's just it's just impossible not to conjure up, you know, uh, you know, science fiction movies and and you know, bad forehead prosthetic foreheads and and uh, on camera. And I think you know that doesn't mean it's not it's not worth doing. But I think it lends itself. And I, we've had you know we have Professor Shelley Wright here, who's a good friend of mine, a colleague at UCSD, and you know she struggles. All, she's one of the few people who you know can confer degrees in the search for extraterrestrial technology. I mean, in there, there's only a couple a handful of groups and Avi claims you know there's only you know there's fewer than one hand one alien hand which only has four fingers as we know but uh, but I do think there's kind of that a little bit of envy uh, that can take place in in the profession I think it can be amplified by by you know secrecy so it's good to be open as open as possible I think that was one thing we could have done a little bit better uh, back then uh, but I want to ask you, you know, in the closing moments that we have, if you, if you have a little bit more time, I want to uh, talk uh, about, uh, well, there is one, uh, you know, it's funny because you do say in the book, like as an offhand comment, you say, Venus is too hot for life. I mean, you do say that in one part of the book. Uh, so that's the only typo I could find in the entire book because we don't know if Venus is too hot for life, right? Um, I'm, hoping, uh, I'm hoping that you're right. I want to ask about collaboration. So I did a study when I was writing my book of, of a bunch of uh, studies on Nobel Prize winning collaborations. So these are the most successful collaborations and they tended to, dis to, uh, to, to dissolve soon after the Nobel Prize was awarded, soon after the discovery was confirmed and there was just a lot of like jealousy and rivalry. Um, is there a danger in some of the work that you're doing? Like you might be a victim of your own success, like you've accomplished so much um, so, so quickly and, and you're paving the way forward. Uh, but um, do you ever worry about the health of a collaboration and how best to maintain it under these stressful circumstances? Because 
You never get trained on like, here's how to speak to the media, A. We never get trained on, here's how to react when people are speaking in the media about you. So how do you nucleate, cultivate, and you know, kind of inculcate these values in your collaboration uh, to fellow team members? That's a tough one. I don't, that's really a hard question. I, hmm. Right now, I was, my mind actually went to a slightly different topic right now. Hmm. And that is that, you know, when any kind of young astronomer working in exoplanets, exoplanet atmospheres, mm -hmm. thinks they're going to find signs of life on an exoplanet atmosphere. And they might. Yeah. And it's the problem of the field growing too big for the resources we have at hand. Hmm. I mean, the real heroes, when you want to think about it, are the ones who built the James Webb Space Telescope. But now there's any number of an end user. So it's different from your work where you had to get the money, get the strategy, build everything from scratch, deploy it, get the data. Here we are using like the, we hope to use the James Webb Space Telescope uh, on a giant facility, but it's almost like a lottery who's going to be the one to get to observe the planet that if it does end up having, having a sign of life. So we have a lot of competition, not in a collaboration, but kind of in the whole community. Mm. I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's collaboration, but there's also a lot of angst, I think. Yeah, it's another one of these, you know, kind of tortured analogies that I, it's like uh, in, in minor league baseball, you can imagine the pitcher who's like trying to get in the major leagues, you know, himself, you know, but like also trying to help younger people get into the major leagues by giving them good balls to hit out of the park. You know, it's like we train our competition, right? And my postdoc right. is going to go and compete for the same resources and the, the late, great Andrew Lang, my my very close friend, father figure to me, mentor. He used to, you know, kind of jokingly say like, I'm in the only profession where I'm trying to like, like reduce my chances of success at winning NSF grants by producing good postdocs. But that's, you know, it's, it's just another kind of weird aspect of being a professor. But would you have it any other way? Would you do any other job? What would you be doing if you weren't MIT, famous professor, genius grant recipient, Sarah C. <laughs> what are you in the multiverse if it's true? I mean, if I wasn't in science, I really, I don't know, I feel like I could have done a great job in industry being, you know, founding and being CEO of a giant company that hopefully did something beneficial and impactful for society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think about that, uh, but I'll, it's more like uh, maybe I'd be a rabbi who is not really sure if he believes in God, but we'll, we'll take that up some other time. Uh, what are the most exciting um, uh, things that you're working on now? Uh, with your team, you you talk a lot about the Starshade. What's this, what's the status of that? Um, and uh, obviously, you ta already talked about JWST, but other other missions and uh, especially the coronagraphs. I don't, I don't know if we can even say that since COVID. But uh, how what how how are uh, coronagraphs faring in this in this age? Well, coronagraph and Starshade alike were for our big mission in space. That would be like the next James Webb Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. We're actually waiting on the astronomy and ast the U.S. astronomy and astrophysics decadal survey yeah. to come out with their every decade. You know, they meet yeah. and make a rank ordered priority list, and so we're all waiting to see if we got in the number one slot, slot there. So that kind of is is a bit on hold. People are reluctant to spend a lot of money or make a lot of effort until that report comes out, which I think should be soon, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because you, you mentioned in the book, you talk a lot about Lyman Spitzer, who was uh, who was at Princeton for many years where you were a postdoc. And um, his son is one of my colleagues here, uh, Nick Spitzer. Yeah. yeah, he's a uh, he's a neuroscientist here at UCSD, a yeah. member of the National Academy, one of the most lovely... Actually, no, no, sorry, I knew that because ironically... My former neighbor across the street, her name's Lydia Spitzer. Oh, really? And Nick, I believe, is her uncle. I want to say Nick is her uncle. Could be, yeah. 
And I think I met him once. Yeah. Um, got a big handlebar mustache. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right yeah. Lydia, her maiden name was Spitzer. Lydia Spitzer, oh, wow. my former neighbor. Yeah, you would love Nick. I'm not sure that was my maiden name, but yeah, that's right. I yeah, remember you, that. You would love Nick. I hope you guys can meet because he's an ice climber. He, he goes and climbs mountains with an oh, wow. ice pick and climbs to the and, and you're just so much more adventurous than I am. Okay, Sarah, well, we're reaching the end when I ask questions of a more kind of um, a metaphysical rather than physics level. I hope you're willing to do that. That's called going into the impossible. Sarah, are you willing to go into the impossible and answer my final three thrilling questions? I'm willing to go there. I'm not quite sure <laughs> if my answers will satisfy. Okay. Well, they won't be, they won't be too, uh, they, they won't, hopefully won't be too onerous for you. Okay. The first question uh, is, uh, is, is relates around what is known as an ethical will, not a material will, but an ethical will. And I was kind of inspired to, to look into this both by its prominence in Judaism. It, it features very largely in Judaism. It's known as a Zava'ah. Uh, and it's sort of uh, the end of the Old Testament, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy is not about Deuterons, but about uh, the second naming and so forth. It's really Moses's ethical will. What does he want the children of Israel, which he won't get into his promised land, uh, but they will. And what does he want them to know in terms of wisdom, not in terms of money? So what I want to ask you, what would you leave uh, to members of your ideological heirs, which, you know, I might count myself as one of them, not necessarily your biological heirs. What piece of wisdom when you hit the age that Moses was, 120 years old, and you depart this mortal coil, what wisdom or learning would you like to impart to people that come after you? In terms of ethics or, or anything, oh, ethics. Well, I'd like to give. Well, the one that ethics popped into my head was, you know how sometimes you're faced with an, a dilemma, and you don't really know what the right right choice is, mm-hmm. but actually you do know, hmm. because deep inside, you know, if you feel like it's wrong, it's wrong, hmm. and so that wisdom is to listen to your inner voice, wow. and just kind of just don't overanalyze, don't overthink, just ask yourself what is. Is this right? Is this wrong? And you'll you'll know the right answer. Uh, that's really lovely. Uh, thank you very much. We're also going to now. The second question takes us deeper into the future than ever before. I don't know if you ever saw uh, the movie Two Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey. So, by the way, that's what Charles is. I want to say that's probably Charles's favorite movie. Really wonderful. Well, we're, <laughs> yeah. we resonate very much uh, together. Mine is Moana, but still. Um, but uh, so in that movie, there features very prominently a structure known as a monolith. It's sort of this object that is kind of menacing. We don't know what it's for. There are hominids in Africa two million years ago, and they hit it with a bone. Nothing happens to it. Later on, it, it goes into outer space, and it's on the surface of the moon, or there's another one there. It seems to be put by an ancient alien civilization, maybe coming from Mars, uh, but, but any, or from Venus, rather. And, uh, and that uh, civilization has put this monolith there as sort of a time capsule. And, uh, and I want to ask you, if you had a time capsule that could last, as this thing did, for hundreds of millions of years, what information, what, what knowledge would you put on it, in it, around it, you know, don't make it a USB because I don't think they'll have readers in a billion years, but, but what would you inscribe on it as a summary of maybe the, the knowledge that you've gleaned or, or the wisdom of humanity as a whole? Wow. That's, that's a big question. How much space do you imagine on this? Well, you Not can really. write in zero point font 
And I'll, 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 I'll give you a little uh, guidance how Richard Feynman answered the question, if you like, but, uh, but, but he, you know, he's only virtually on my show, so. I guess I'd want to ha capture both like our biggest disasters as humanity and also mm. our biggest achievements. Mm. And you know, I'd have to go away and think about what those, those actually are. Mm. Like you think of the world wars, you think of overpopulation as being the bad things. And some of the great ones we've solved, like the ozone hole, you know, mm -hmm. we actually figured out that chemistry. Not not me, but, you know, Mario Molino and others. Who was here at UCSD. Yeah, yeah, he was as right. as at UCSD. And he, well, and he was at MIT, of course. When yes, he that's true. Did that, he was at UCSD. <laughs> you know, just the, <laughs> sorry, that was, just, you know, solving that problem and changing coolants so that we could not have that problem. So I, I kind of want to capture, like, the biggest horrendous disasters we had. Mm. And then also the ones that that we we overcame and the good things that we did as humanity wow as you know lessons learned time capsule yeah that's right not, not just we were here but we mattered yeah i asked andrurian it was carl sagan's widow i asked her you know what would you put on it or in it and uh she's like i already did that <laughs> what are you talking about she uh was her brainwaves were recorded on the voyager one golden disc uh right after she fell in love with carl sagan so it's very poignant oh, to uh to hear that from her okay sarah last question before you go back to ordering Canada. So what does it mean that you're a member, you're the Order of Canada, you're an officer? What, do I have to salute you? What does that mean? Um, well, Officer of the Order of Canada yes. is, it's like an honorary position, like one of the Medals of Achievement the United States will give to its citizens. Ah, wonderful. Okay, uh, last question. Now we're going to go backwards in time, Sarah. We went forwards in time a billion years just a second ago. Now we're going to go backwards in time. But by the way, to hear all of Sarah's answers, you're going to have to subscribe to the newsletter that I put out. And many of our guests are co-subscribers. And that you can get at briankeating.com. You'll get Sarah's answers to the thrilling three and maybe a giveaway or two. We'll, uh, we're talking about some fun giveaways before we start a recording. But to hear Sarah's answers, you're going to have to go subscribe uh, to the mailing list. But the final question for Professor Sarah Seeger, an inspiration to many, uh, and including me, is going backwards in time, Sarah. So uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, again, so I'm the co-director here at UCSD of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And as part of that, uh, we run the Into the Impossible podcast, the name of which derives from one of Arthur's famous three laws, one of which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the voice you hear saying that at the beginning of each one of my recordings is Sir Arthur C. Clarke saying that famous phrase. His second law, which I use around the faculty meetings, uh, is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And his third law is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And I want to ask you, Sarah, I have my suspicions, but I want to ask you as a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, advice to your former self, what advice would you give to give younger version of Sarah the courage uh, to go as you did into the impossible? Well, I think I would tell the younger version and to all those people out there who are different in some way that you can take advantage of that dif difference. If you're really different in some way from everyone around you, you can actually use that to your advantage in the future. Mm. That's really lovely, Sarah. And I want to thank you so much, not only for your time today, but for this gift uh, to astronomers, to lay people. Um, it's, really, it's really as close as you could get to 
maybe not a how-to guide, not a manual on how to do all these things uh, that that you've accomplished in, in your in your life, but to um, to really serve as a, as a as a guiding point that you're not alone and that there are fellow small lights in the universe. And I found it very poignant, extremely emotional. I'm very proud of myself. I may not be a member of an officer of some order of, of, Cal, of Canada, of some maple leaf or, or whatever, but I made it through without crying. I did choke up. I, I promised you I would get forklempt, but I didn't lose it. And I'm very proud of myself, Sarah, because you are a spectacular writer, an amazing individual, and I'm honored to, uh, that you spent your time with me today. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a pleasure. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.